0: We're going to start today with a special guest, Miriam Rivera from ULU Ventures. Miriam, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you, Srana. It's a pleasure to be here this morning.
0: So, Miriam, uh, in order to introduce you to our audience, I think the first place we would like to start is to um, explain about ULU Ventures and your background. Tell us about your investing focus. How big is the fund? What kind of investments do you like to make? Let's just get to know one another.
1: Okay. So I started Ulu Ventures about 10 years ago. Um, I'm one of the co-founders, and I did this after I had been uh, at Google, where I was a very early employee and helped to grow the company from about 160 employees when I joined to about 15,000 employees and contractors by the time when I, I left, from 85 million in revenue to about $10 billion, and I worked on a lot of our early partnership deals that uh, generated um, the lion's share of that revenue, and as well as our um, advertising partnerships, um, which again, were responsible for um, billions of dollars of that revenue as well. I. Started Ulu Ventures in part because I wanted to. Um, you know, I, I share a lot of your mission in terms of wanting to democratize access to venture capital here in the U.S. And uh, in our country, we have uh, so much talent that's coming from so many different parts of the world, um, and oftentimes. Uh, they're not getting access to venture capital. Um, In particular, women only get about 2% of the venture capital dollars, even though women have exceeded men in terms of educational attainment in this country. Um, And they're certainly underrepresented relative to their um, participation in the tech sector. The same is true for um, underrepresented minorities in this country and often even immigrants who are probably overrepresented in the tech sector um, as a percentage of the population Um, And so at ULU, um, we use a very quantitative process to help make our decisions around investments. And the uh, basic idea is that we're gonna treat all comers um, kind of the same. Uh, And what typically happens is often that the criteria tend to change depending on who's the person uh, being addressed as an entrepreneur. And we wanna try to avoid um, having cognitive bias in our process. So that we really can access talent um, from wherever it comes, and uh, as a result, we have uh, really a much more diverse set of entrepreneurs um, in Silicon Valley than um, what our industry has. And you know, we probably have about a third of our entrepreneurs are women, for example, which is more representative of their participation in the tech sector. Um, the same kinds of numbers, uh, you know, relative proportions are coming out. Uh, for groups like underrepresented minorities who might you know, make up about 10% of the sector, and that's what we're seeing. So uh, we don't have a, an explicit uh, quota or um, number that we're trying to reach, but we do um, actually tend to uh, get a diverse base that is representative of what we're seeing in the tech sector here um, by applying a more quantitative um, an objective process that's called decision analysis. So Ulu Ventures is a seed stage firm. We focus on uh, early stage investments. We're often the first dollars into uh, companies when people have one to six founders. Is not an unusual um, uh, number, and we have about you know about employees, and there's usually about two of them on average. Um, we typically invest about $500,000 in the companies, and our uh, fund, too, is a $66 million fund, and we're about half invested um, at this point.
0: Well, uh, what you said about diversity, obviously, is music to our ears because that's very much our community, and uh, we, we're very happy to see that that's what you're doing. and, and uh that people are paying attention to this issue a lot more right now, and and, and that's progress for sure. Um, Let me ask you a little bit more about the stage. So Seed today is no longer, you know, when I was doing uh, my earlier startups in the late 90s, I did three in a row, but at the time it was Seed and Series A. But now it's you know, friends and family, pre-seed, seed, post-seed, pre-series A, small series A, traditional series A, the spectrum has uh, segmented. Where do you see yourself in that continuum?
1: So it's funny. We we probably end up everywhere even up to a traditional series A, I guess I would say. And you're right, but sometimes the funny thing is that uh, – a lot of people um, consider themselves early-stage investments. By the time somebody gets a Series A, there often have been three rounds of financing in the company. And um, in different companies, we have participated in three rounds before um, there is a traditional Series A. Uh, I guess our, our focus would typically – it typically depends on the companies that we see and the opportunities that are in front of us. but. A lot of people are uh, raising capital at each of those stages, as you say, um, from fans friends and family rounds, um, and so sometimes we 'll make a smaller investment, but our typical um, investment amount is uh, five hundred thousand. but we've you know made investments as uh, low as a hundred thousand and here the uh, seed category has kind of increased in size over the ten years that I have uh, been investing. So actively, and they've kind of moved from seed rounds being about five hundred thousand dollars total to um, now, you know, seed rounds being up to three to four million dollars. And it really just depends on the nature of the business, and also, frankly, I think it depends on the availability of capital. There's been so much capital coming into the sector that um, rounds have just gotten larger. Um, some of them are, you know, priced, I, I think, extremely high, and our quantitative process helps us avoid overpaying on companies.
0: Now, uh, what do you like to see? Would you invest, for example, would you invest in concept stage ventures or is that not part of the uh, procedure?
1: We have, it's a pretty rare thing. We've probably made about 100 and, uh, it'll be a little over 100 investments uh, this week. And so the typical company has usually had some sort of proof of concept um, launch of a product, may have um, some pilot customers. We, we tend to focus on enterprise um, applications and uh, not consumers, so it's a little different um, business. Mm-hmm. And the majority of them are either in some sort of a pilot discussion, may even have um, a term sheet with a customer that's waiting for a product, that kind of a thing, as opposed to um, a pure proof of concept, uh, or just like a deck, you know. But we have actually on very rare occasions made one, so SoFi was one of our companies where we made an investment on the basis of a deck. Um, And that was in part um, because we, um, my partner had known uh, one of the principals in his prior work at Wells Fargo, um, knew that he was really one of the smartest people in banking and so therefore um, there was a heightened level of comfort um, with that particular uh, concept. And you know, I think that they, they were also a more mature company that was very clearly um, setting themselves up to um, comply with securities regulations Um, banking regulations, and had the appeal to draw in um, very senior people from within uh, those kinds of sectors um, to help grow their business. Mm
0: -hmm. So uh, what about geography? Do you invest only in Silicon Valley, or are you investing outside as well?
1: Um, I would say... It's probably 95% of our investing is in Silicon Valley. We have some investments in other parts of the United States and some in other places in the world. Um, I would say that our most successful investing has been um, in the Silicon Valley area and that, you know, it's it's interesting, but if you look at venture capital as a whole, uh, most of the investments made by venture capitalists happen to be within um, 100 miles of the Home Office, let's say, and the and I, I'm on the board of the Kaufman Foundation in Kansas City, which is uh, studies entrepreneurship um, and has publicized a, a lot of information about entrepreneurship. And you know, they're trying to change that, even here in the United States, where only four percent of venture capital dollars are expended in the center of the country, and almost all of it is expended on mm-hmm. the coast.
0: Right, that's true. So uh, what about sector? You said you do mostly or all enterprise software investments. Could you elaborate on what do you like to invest in these days? What trends are you following or are you excited about? Do we have a bit of a flavor?
1: Yeah, so a lot of our companies are traditional SaaS companies, um, but many of them are, you know, we're also invested in things like Internet of Things, um, certainly AI, which I think of really as just the next step in machine learning, Um, and smart data is really one of the big focuses of our investing. Financial uh, technologies are another one that we've uh, made a lot of investments in, as well as education technologies. Um, So most of the things that differentiate us is that we are selling into an enterprise customer, and typically large enterprise. We do have some that are selling into small enterprise, but that's, again, um, more unusual. But we also consider enterprise um, to be a little different from you know, the traditional, like, uh, Fortune or Global 2000 type of companies, but um, to also include, for example, selling education technologies into schools
0: and mm-hmm. more
1: educational-related services into the schools.
0: Yeah. Okay. So let's double click down on on your portfolio. Let's talk about some of the highlights of your portfolio. And as you are explaining some of these, give us some insight into your thought process on when these companies came to you, what did they have, and and what did you see that attracted you or convinced you that this is going to be one of your few portfolio companies?
1: Okay. So, We have, um, I'll start with one of our recent investments that I think is very relatable, which is a company called Zoom, Z-U-M, and they're in the transportation space. um, And one way that people might describe them is that they're Uber for kids, and they're Uber for kids um, typically related to school uh, transportation. And one of the things, when they initially started, they were going down kind of a, a testing path, um, the, it's actually a founding family. Um, there's a sister and two brothers, um, all uh, immigrants from India, who came uh, to the U.S. Uh, two of them were in a Stanford master's in management program here in Silicon Valley. Um, after they had been uh, working, uh, The brother, one of the brothers in uh, technology in the eastern part of the United States, the other, brother had been working for the India military uh, managing logistics, and then um, the sister had been working in tech here in Silicon Valley. And so they came uh, to this idea of a company just based in part on life experience and the difficulty that um, two-parent working households have in managing transportation to and from school, um, sports after school, uh, pickups. Um, sometimes from sports in different cities, um, and the interesting thing was that there was a um, there was a another company that had already been in the market that was um, had raised substantial capital. They had um, maybe raised over 10 million dollars in capital at the time, and so they were kind of coming from behind, if you will. But um, with only two hundred thousand dollars of capital, they were able to generate um, a third of the rides of the company that had um, that had already raised um, ten million. And so we thought they're onto something. <laughs> um, yeah. And one thing that they were onto, um, I think, was this. Uh, and they didn't quite know it yet because the data was still, you know, not as clear. But what they were trying to do was also selling to the schools as opposed to just selling directly to parents, which was how the other company in the space had been going to market. Um, so they were having radio ads, for example, which are very expensive, um, ads on Google mm-hmm. and Facebook, etc. cetera. Um, and, and this company, Zoom, was going directly to schools and saying, you know, we can um, help transport your kids from the train station to the school from... The school to the sports, uh, and also, you know, you can make us available to the parents if, if they want to have their kids picked up uh, from the sports and brought home, those kinds of things. And those conversations were working. Schools were very interested in what they had to say, and it turned out that this was a, a very cost effective way of reaching more consumers more quickly because obviously each school is essentially a viral mm-hmm. network. And so, um, one, we thought that the – and also the focus wasn't on price competition. The, the other company that had been in the space was using um, Uber and Lyft drivers uh, to come and pick up students. But what would happen sometimes is that uh, there was surge pricing, which increased the money that a driver could make doing a different pickup than picking up a child. And so, literally, they were leaving children behind <laughs> – <laughs> Which as any mother would know is completely unacceptable. Yeah. And um, you know, the other company was run by men and this one was run by a mom. Um and so I think she really related to the issues, um, she really related to the customer's needs. She understood the importance of safety and reliability and understood that for the parents, um, reliability was more important than the price. Um and so They tend to have a a more stable set of drivers. They tend to um, pay a a bigger fraction than other um, transportation companies to the drivers, and they uh, try to develop a set of uh, drivers and relationships around the family so that the family um, has more comfort. They also have um, tracking technology to let the parents um, be able to know where their child is at any time.
0: So it's an Uber for uh, bringing children to school and activities.
1: Yeah, and they're growing very quickly. They went from being in one school district last year to being in 103 school districts this year from having 30 schools to 2,000 schools in one year.
0: Awesome. Fabulous. Okay. All right, well, let's do another, maybe another example of something that you've invested in that's representative of how you think?
1: So Arch is a company, Arch Systems is a company that is in the Internet of Things space, and they were started by a set of founders that had worked in the Peace Corps, and in the Peace Corps they uh, had really wanted to develop sensors that would allow people to um, kind of test Um, well water quality um, and be able to tell people at a distance because many people are walking um, pretty great distances to sources of water and they uh, wanted to develop a reliable and really low cost approach to um, censoring this type of uh, water access and realized that it was a really challenging problem to do it um, cheaply and part of that was that you typically required a prototyping phase and then um, a manufacturing phase, um, meaning that you developed something, and then you built it out, and then you kind of specced it out, and then you could um, have a manufacturer build something. So For a number of years, they worked in a not-for-profit to help develop these sensors, and then they realized that they also had something that could now be a potential commercial application so they founded a company to, um, to uh, take these kinds of sensors um, and their process and be able to help any company uh, build Internet of Things devices. And their great insight was um, you know, a very old insight, um, similar to um, what the Japanese did in the 70s, which was to say, why don't we design for manufacturability from the outset? Um, and that will help us to reduce our cost, to increase our quality, et cetera. And so what they did was develop software that could go from um, design through manufacturing um, and reduce the need for different skill sets, which are difficult to find um, now because everyone went to um, computer science, (laughs) And, and many people moved away from electrical engineering and hardware engineering over the last decades. And so it's actually very difficult to build devices because you don't have as much of this expertise um, available. But what we know is that everybody in the world is trying to run their operations more efficiently. And also, um, there are many applications for technology from the field. Um, And whether it be uh, wells, agriculture, or um, uh, meters, for water or energy, um, and also factories, right? So essentially a factory is a set of um, machines um, that may be um, all in one physical location, um, but a company may have many physical locations in which they're producing goods. And people would like to be able to um, run those factories more efficiently by being able to measure production, understand when there's a problem with the machine, understand what the problem with the machine is. And so, ARCH is working with, um, now they have um, entered into a relationship with one of the world's largest manufacturers to um, help provide this kind of data in the field um, so that they can uh, run factories as if the machines were actually related and communicating to each other by taking data from a huge variety of machines and sending it into um, a central, um, Data architecture, where they can then uh, track production and uh, problems with machines.
0: And what did they come to you with? What did they have when you invested?
1: So I think the things, and again, these were three people. Um, They had essentially developed the prototypes of these devices and the Mm -hmm. um, essentially the ability to um, code these kinds of devices and software. So they had. and, and part of that was that they had already spent several years um, in this not for profit um, version of what they were doing, pursuing this um, goal of developing cheaper devices that could be used in contexts that were often, um, you know, where technology wasn't being used in the field. And so they had both experience, they'd shown tremendous commitment um, to mm-hmm. what they were doing, and to creating um, affordable and very quick to produce devices, and that was something that could reduce the cost of creating an Internet of Things device by an order of magnitude um, and also uh, make it uh, uh, something that could happen in months as opposed to typically more like a year from prototype to manufacturability.
0: Ma'am, are you chasing unicorns?
1: not generally, <laughs> because uh, you know when we're investing in the companies that we do, um, the chance of failure tends to be incredibly high. Um, probably, you know, our expectation is that about uh, two thirds of our companies may really amount to um, nothing. Um, we've actually been luckier than that in the in the real practice of our business. So. Um, in Fund 1, uh, where we had made 64 investments, um, we have only had um, on the order of 15 to 20% of those companies go out of business, which in 10 years is not bad, um, given the level uh-huh. of uh, risk involved in early-stage startups. But the reality is is that most of those businesses will probably not be high-returning businesses financially. Um, And that's true of the industry as a whole. Venture capital in the United States, um, there are about 4,000 investments made each year, but only about 2.5% of the dollars invested are returning most of the profit in the entire industry. And even for the top VC firms, uh, about 4.5% of their investments uh, generate (laughs) about uh, 60% of their profit. So... Um, We're in a highly risky business, but what I would say is that it's a business that is hits-driven. If you think about um, how many businesses work, like let's say um, the movie industry, uh, the drug industry, um, the oil industry, many of them are actually dependent on um, trying to find a blockbuster drug, a blockbuster movie, a blockbuster Mm -hmm. well. And actually, venture capital is is one of yeah. those industries. So everybody, in a sense, is chasing unicorns. But we try to do it before anybody else knows they're unicorns.
0: So um, you will find this comment interesting. Um, with your Kaufman Foundation board hat on, uh, we are bringing on a lot of investors onto our community who are who have observed that most of the exits in technology industry are 50-60 million dollar exits. So that means that you can't really raise tens of millions of dollars and expect to make any profits out of 50-60 million exits. So they are going for small capital efficient ventures and then early exits so that they can stay within that window. And, uh, And there is a class of micro VCs developing who are focusing on that where I think the it doesn't have to be that kind of swing for the fences, have to have a home run, have to have a hit kind of thing. You can you create a niche value, and, and as long as there's enough TAM that gives a corporation, a strategic acquirer, a foot into an area that they want to get into, you can still have a successful, you know, even 5X, 10X kind of return. Yeah, so, I, um, I think
1: a lot of different models of how people um, – pursue early-stage venture. And, I and you know, frankly, there's a lot of companies that are building technologies that are going to be features as opposed to standalone companies, and they're well-positioned for acquisition. And I think that, um, you know, that is um, one model that can definitely be pursued profitably um, in this sector. For myself, um, I have chosen to do this for a partly for some of our reasons around democratizing access to venture capital. Um, I'm playing this kind of a game because I've been really fortunate. My parents were migrant farm workers and factory workers. They came here from Puerto Rico, um, and I was a full scholarship student myself. I'm a first-generation college graduate, and I want to show Silicon Valley that people like me, people like us, can really achieve that kind of success. In um, technology companies. And, you know, I, I believe that because I've had such good fortune to both attend Stanford University, to have been uh, an entrepreneur myself uh, back in the 90s, um, to then uh, work at a company like Google, I have access that maybe others like me wouldn't have. And I'm going to use that access to demonstrate what we can do.
0: Yeah. Yeah, but part of the mission of what we are doing is also to provide that access to a vast number of people um, in a very systematic way. So I know you have to run to Stanford for an event. So uh, Uh thank you for participating and sharing your thoughts, and and very nice to meet you.
1: Thank you so much, Ramana. It's been a pleasure to...